Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This week, Mike and Jude are joined by Emily Kilcrease, Director of the Energy, Economics, and Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. Emily formerly served as Deputy Assistant U.S. Trade Representative and National Security Council Director for International Trade, Investment, and Development. Welcome back to the Asia Chessboard. I'm Mike Green and joined as always by my friend and colleague Jude Blanchett at CSIS in Washington. I'm at the U.S. Studies Center in Sydney and we're joined today by Emily Kilcrease from the Center for New American Security, who's come to the center from USTR and commerce and positions managing competition with China in the technology domain, export controls, and especially investment screening. Critical, critical topics as this geopolitical game unfolds where aligning with allies is absolutely necessary, where Chinese counter moves have to be anticipated, and where you don't want to struggle your own competitiveness in the private sector. So complicated in some ways, but but pretty basic strategy in others. And to help us unpack it, we're delighted Emily's here. So thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Jude, for having me. So as you know, we start the show by letting people know how you got into this business. USTR, commerce, investment screening, national security technology, that's a lot. What charted your path into this rich, rich area of work? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I actually started my career working on environment and trade issues, which has been keeping me in good stead these days with all the issues around the IRA and electric vehicles. But actually, kind of by chance, decided to apply for a job through USA Jobs at the Department of Commerce running their CFIUS program and was lucky enough to get it. And so kind of through that somewhat torturous bureaucratic process, I actually fell in love with this set of issues where the economics and the security really bump up into each other. And you have to think about some really hard trade-offs when you're making policy decisions. And I've been in the field ever since then. So we've had over 50 guests on this show, Emily, and you're the first one who's gotten here by USA Jobs. Undergrad and grad students, don't give up on USA Jobs. Exactly. I didn't know anyone. There was no networking. I just applied and I got the job. And actually, it's happened twice, so it can happen. So what caused the migration from environment to national security? What area of expertise did you have that translated? Yeah, so I always had the interest in trade policy. So I went to SICE, you know, obviously, which has a strong international economics and, and trade policy focus. And kind of the through line that I draw between those those two areas of working on environment and trade and then moving into the national security and trade space is that it's really about how governments decide when to constrain trade. When do we not just pursue purely open markets and, and free trade because we have other legitimate public policy objectives that we're seeking to pursue, whether it's protection of the environment or protection of national security. And so I've always been interested in this realm of where do we put limits on the pursuit of open markets and, and free trade. And so that's kind of the connection I, I draw there. So Emily, just turning to the bulk of the conversation now, you've written two really good provocative pieces recently, one in War on the Rocks and one in Foreign Affairs that explore both the critical importance of working in syncopation with key allies and partners on denying China or keeping sort of advanced technology with military application out of China's hands, but also how difficult that can be. But before we get into it, I wanted to ask you more of a level set technical question, which is in your foreign affairs piece, you write, unlike US dollar dominance in global finance, the US position in advanced technology supply chains is more contingent and more vulnerable to shocks. So at a very high level, I wondered if you could first set the scene for us of why global supply chains and U.S. dominance or at least influence over global supply chains is not like what it is over global financial systems. 
Yeah. And first, I do want to give credit to my co-author on the foreign affairs piece, Sarah Bowley-Dansman, an associate professor at Indiana University. And it's really some of her early work looking at how to apply network analysis into international political economy studies that really kind of sparked the idea for the piece. Also very much kind of drawn from some of the thinking around weaponized interdependence that Dan Dresner and Henry Farrell and Abraham Newman have done. It's really looking at how in the globalized economy, you do have these complex networks of economic engagement between countries. And it so happens that there are particular countries that do have privileged positions within these very complex networks. But not all of those networks are created in the same way. They're not all structured in the same way. And the US doesn't have the same position in each of those networks. So when you look at the global financial system, it's a really clear example of a network that's structured in a hierarchical way in which the U.S. maintains a very dominant position. But it continues to enjoy that dominant position because of the network effects that other countries derive from using the U.S. dollar. So much like we're all kind of stuck with Facebook and Twitter because everyone else is using them, you know, other countries are stuck with the U.S. dollar, like it or not. But of course, there's a lot of benefits to using the dollar. So that kind of compounds the advantage over time. In contrast, when you look at technology supply chains and when you look at the chip supply chain in particular, it is much more complex But there's been, I think, a little bit of a a misunderstanding about exactly how dominant the U.S. role is within that supply chain. There are places in the supply chain where the U.S. does have a privileged position, but the United States does not control the entirety of the supply chain when you're going from raw materials all the way to a finished chip. And in fact, when you look across that entire life cycle, there are a lot of countries that do play a really important role. So you've got, of course, the United States really strong on design, really strong on tooling. But then you've got Japan, the Netherlands, China has an important role to play. Obviously, Taiwan, when we're talking about advanced chip production, all of these different countries or nodes have their own particular important role to play at different layers in this kind of very complex chip supply chain network. The last piece I'll point out in terms of a difference with the dollar in the global financial system is that the dollar really does have this network effect going for it. In contrast, when you look at the U.S. position in the semiconductor supply chain, companies that have dominance now, they maintain that not through network effects, but through continuous investment, through continuous competition. It's a kind of a node, a position of of prominence that can become fragile over time if they're not able to compete and innovate to kind of maintain their place in the network. And so those are some of the key distinctions we are trying to draw between the dollar and the U.S. position in these supply chains, where it can be a little bit misleading to think that the U.S. really does have an unassailable position in in some of these nodes. So you just referenced some of the sort of key nodes or choke points talking about the Netherlands, Japan, the United States. I wonder if you can explore a bit. You mentioned in, in one of the pieces that supply chains often find ways to adjust around some obstacles. There are frictions that are, appear to supply. Does that essentially mean that there's an inherent attention in trying to essentially leverage a choke point for your own you know, strategic advantage if purchasers and other suppliers are essentially able to move around that? That's exactly right. I mean, that's the danger. And that's the conversation we've been having about some of the recent export controls from the US side when it comes to semiconductor manufacturing equipment or or tooling. Even though we have a privileged position, we are not the 100% dominant supplier of tooling. And so if you're only controlling, even if it's 60, 70% of the market, whatever that number is, by putting a control in place, you're kind of allowing for this competition to erode the advantage of that place in the network over time. That's why, you know, part of the reason why Sarah and I wanted to write the article that we did was to really kind of hammer home that point that these choke point technologies 
while they can be leveraged really effectively in the short term, over time, they can become more fragile as there is this kind of continuous competition to backfill for sales to where those those companies can no longer operate. This might be a good time to actually just dive into some of the more recent U.S. actions and then later on in the conversation to tease out how you see these unilateral but multilateral actions as well shaping the landscape. So first, you know, the most consequential recent actions the U.S. took were last October 7th. And these were some significant efforts to block China's access to advanced chips. The logic being that China was getting access to technology that it was just channeling into its military security complex. I wonder if you can first just quickly summarize those October 7th restrictions for us lay people. And then these have often been called a game changer. I wonder if you agree and if you do, why? Yeah, it's important to kind of start the conversation with what the controls were before October 7th. So there was already a pretty heavy regime of controls on chips, on tooling, on products that would go to China for a military or military end use. So those were have been subject to a, a straight up embargo for, for quite some time. What the October 7th rules did kind of in three key categories, they expanded the scope of rules that would be subject to basically a prohibition and got much deeper into kind of the commercial ecosystem in the AI sector, in supercomputing, and in indigenous advanced chip manufacturing. And the rationale that the United States put forward was that it's really getting quite hard to kind of make these distinctions between what is civil and what is military in China because of the structure of China's economy. And so to really make sure that there's not diversion for a national security related end use, and they explicitly talk about military modernization and WMDs and systemic abuses of human rights as as the kind of the policy rationale here in order to make sure that U.S. tech isn't being used for those purposes in China, you actually need to draw the circle quite a bit larger to make sure that U.S. tech isn't supporting those sorts of initiatives. So what the rules actually do, they control advanced AI chips. They apply those on an extraterritorial basis as well. So pretty much any advanced AI chip made anywhere in the world cannot be sold to China right now. And I'm saying advanced specifically because there's a particular technical threshold that's put in the rule. So it's not even all AI chips, but at the higher end, those are now all controlled. They put in place controls for any controlled chip server or computer going to a defined supercomputing end use. So really trying to choke off a wide range of products going into the kind of the high end of China's supercomputing industry. And then finally, they kind of take aim at China's indigenous chip production capabilities. And here's where we get into the controls around tooling, what I call the fab by fab approach, where if there is a fab in China that's producing at a particular technical threshold, no products from the US can go into those fabs. So they're doing a lot with these different rules, and they all layer on top of each other. But the effect is kind of a swarming effect, where they're really trying to make sure that for those advanced AI supercomputing and indigenous chip production capabilities, U.S. tech is no longer feeding into that part of the ecosystem in China. You know, a year ago, the discussion at the policy world in terms of the strategic approach of the United States is it was something like a small yard in a high fence. Very particular, discrete technologies where we have a very clear security rationale and we're going to put significant barriers around that. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like we've now moved to something much more expansive because if you're talking about moving into basic uh, advanced, but chips that are really building block for lots of technologies of the future, as you said, the circle's really been expanded out. Are we still in a small yard high fence or, or is this just a different strategic paradigm? I think it's fair to say that it's a different strategic paradigm. And this was really set out first by Jake Sullivan in a speech that he gave before SCSP that 
has now become rather famous in export control circles, where he said it's no longer enough to keep China two generations behind certain of these key enabling technology areas. We must keep them as far behind as possible. And kind of in tandem with that, when the October 7th rules were announced, it was made clear that these would be static controls. So even as technology advances, the technology controls will not move. And so that is a shift from where U.S. policy had been before. So when you think about what the effect of that will be over time, technology will move. China will, at least according to the theory here, be frozen in place. And so there will be a wider range of technologies that they don't have access to. And so I think this is part of why there's been some concern that maybe part of the rationale for the rules was more of a economic protection strategy rather than a pure national security strategy. Because when you think about keeping China frozen in a particular technology node over time and that they'll get further and further behind as time goes on, there inevitably are economic consequences to that, even if those were not the intent. So I think that's why we're having some of these conversations now about whether this really was purely a national security-based justification, and I think it was, but I do think it's also hard to deny that it's going to have fairly profound implications for how China can advance moving forward. Emily, if you're a company like ASML in the Netherlands, these export control rules are massively important for how you do business with China, of course, and especially the really consequential agreement that Jake Sullivan announced with Japan and the Netherlands on implementing export controls of semiconductor tooling and fabrication, which which is a big deal if you're one of those companies. What I wanted to ask is how big a deal is that if you're like Tesla or Apple? Is this going to affect, you think, tech supply chains for the really, really big investors who are their customers in China? You think we're going to see a much larger friend shoring in, in industries beyond just machine tooling and uh, semiconductor fabrication and semiconductor exports? You know, it's an interesting question, right? Because it's an action that's being taken with a wide variety of other actions from the administration to yank supply chains out of China. So I think it's actually in some ways hard to isolate the effects of the October 7th controls alone and determine if they'll have these kind of knock-on effects further on down the supply chain. We think it's clear that the most direct effects are going to be on the tooling companies in the, the Dutch, the Japanese tooling companies. We're also hearing a lot from South Korea in terms of the impacts on their memory chip companies who do have operations in China and had to get some like emergency licenses so they didn't have to shut down an entire fab. I think there's some outstanding questions now about whether some of those licenses will continue to be granted, if there is a need to move some of these supply chains out of China if there's going to be a transition period, kind of how smooth that process would be. If they're able to manage this in a relatively smooth way and not disrupt supply chains, then I wouldn't expect that we would see impacts on companies like Tesla or Apple. If it's a much more rapid exit, like for example, if the South Korean memory chip companies don't get granted additional licenses to operate past the one-year period that they've already been granted, You could see how, at least in that particular segment of the memory chip sector, that there could be some disruptions. And then all of a sudden, we're back to where we were in the pandemic, where all of a sudden car makers can't get chips. You know, the historical analogy, we, in my view, we want to avoid is the protectionism of the 1930s, where trade with Japan, because the Smoot-Hawley tariffs dropped in half in a year. And most historians look back and say that radicalized an already dangerous Japan and really was one of the contributing factors to Pearl Harbor and World War II. And that's why, of course, the U.S. and the allies created the Bretton Woods system to avoid that. And, you know, now that we're in this decoupling or de-risking or friend-shoring game, 
you know, that's the risk I guess people have to think about. You know, Jude and I did a survey in 2020, public opinion and also elite opinion in industry and national security community. It was pretty interesting and consistent. Only 20% or less of Americans or American experts or Australians or German or Dutch or British experts, only less than 20% wanted complete decoupling. Most of them wanted trade with China. But there was remarkable consistency across the industrialized economies among experts and the public, including in a survey we just did last year here in Sydney with the Australian public and American and Japanese public. And that is about two thirds say when it comes to high tech, reduce our dependence on China, protect our technologies. So it seems like we're in the sweet spot in terms of, you know, protecting competition without, you know, creating a 1930s trading block system. I'd be interested if you see it that way. Do you think there should be care or worry about a broader decoupling kind of, you know, cascading effect? It sounds like you think probably not. What do we do to make sure that doesn't happen? Yeah, you know, I certainly fall into the camp of folks who don't think that a full decoupling is necessary or or wise, nor is it a need for us to do so. I mean, when you look at the full balance of trade with China, there's a ton of trade that's happening that is not national security relevant, and there's no strategic rationale for halting it. And when you even look at some of the recent trade numbers that have come out, trade with China is going up despite everything. And so I do think that's a good indication that even though these sorts of controls and the conversations we're having around outbound investment controls and all sorts of other measures that we're trying to put in place to de-risk in some of these very specific sectors where there is kind of that dual use civil military capability that we're concerned about transferring to China, that is still fairly small compared to the overall relationship, even though strategically the importance is quite big. Now, where I think a lot of our partners have some questions is kind of where this logic ends. So we have obviously taken some pretty important steps in the chip sector, but we've also heard the administration say that we're very concerned about AI. We're very concerned about quantum. These are also the enabling technologies of the future. We have a high priority on clean energy and biotech. I don't think clean energy and biotech are really going to be the subject of export controls moving forward. It's just not the right tool for those sorts of economic competitions. But we haven't explicitly ruled that out. And so I do hope that part of the conversations that we're having with partners and allies is kind of defining the outer bounds of where we see this new export control policy landing. Is it really just around chips and AI and quantum? Is it broader? And how are we going to consult with them as we make those decisions and think about controls further on down the road. The last point I want to make here, too, is that when we think about decoupling, obviously, there's a need to reduce vulnerabilities in certain respects. But when you decouple, when you cut a trade link, there is something you lose in terms of strategic leverage. And that's something we need to weigh in the balance as well. And that's not necessarily an argument against what we did on October 7th, because maybe in that case, the impairing the capability outweighed the benefits of kind of retaining that strategic leverage. But, you know, one thing that my colleague at, at CNAS, Paul Shari, has pointed out with the AI chip controls in particular, was that we might have actually had more impact if we had waited a little bit longer. Because as the computing processes continue to grow and AI becomes more and more integral, we actually might have had a bigger impact, waited until those capabilities grew rather than taking the shot now. And I think that's a really interesting argument to think about in terms of how do we maximize the impact of some of these actions, kind of recognizing that no single action is going to you know, take out China's AI capability. It's all about slowing in increments. And so how do you make that increment as big as possible? In other words, it might have been better to make this decision once China's industrial policy was on the beltway, was on the highway, and couldn't get off. Is that the logic rather than making the decision when they're pulling out of the driveway and can choose That's other right, routes? That's right, right. So if they build some of these, you know, high performance systems around US chips and then you yank the chip out, arguably the impact is higher. 
I'm not too worried about the 1930s either, but you know the history of CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S., investment screening. And back in the 80s and 90s, you know, shoe companies were arguing to, that, that the government should block Korean purchases of shoe companies because an army marches on its feet. You know, the rent-seeking, it's a rent-seeking smorgasbord for protectionism, which I don't think the Biden administration is going there, but it's catnip, this stuff. It's catnip for protectionists. Hey, let me ask you about ours. I mean, you make the really important point that unlike the sovereignty of the dollar, we don't have the sort of market moving position. We rely especially on Japan and the Netherlands. We rely on Korea and Taiwan. And this agreement with the Netherlands and Japan, I think, is a really big coup for the administration. But as I understand it, the strategy is now the Netherlands and Japan have to create their own regulatory and legal framework to implement that. And in the meantime, if you're a Dutch or Japanese company or maybe a Korean company, you're sitting out there exposed because you're restraining your investments and your exports to China because of U.S. law. And your own government doesn't actually have a policy. And I'm just wondering, is this kind of build it in your own cultural and regulatory context allies going to work? Or do we need like a, a Wassenauer agreement or a Colcon or some? Or is that just way too ambitious? How do you do this? Because the, the intent is really clearly aligned. But the system of actually not only protecting the exports, but also protecting the companies because of the danger of Chinese retaliation, if we're not aligned, right? The Chinese will pick off the weak player. Maybe it's the Dutch. Maybe it's the Koreans. Is this impressive, but nevertheless patchwork approach sustainable? So there's a lot to unpack there. So let me start with the let me start with the caveat about the deal. So first, as folks may know, there was this report of the deal on tooling with the Dutch and the Japanese. Nobody really knows what's in that deal, and the details do matter quite a bit. I mean, the general understanding is that there was a deal to restrict a broader range of tooling going into the DUV, which is kind of the generation behind the EUV. It's also the DUV technology that was reported to be used by SMIC to get their seven nanometer breakthrough last summer, which I think has sparked some of the concerns. So we can some debate about how meaningful that was and whether SMIC can actually produce anything at scale. But nonetheless, I think is part of the, the overall calculus here. So we understand, broadly speaking, some of that DUV is going to be subject to the, the controls. There's a question about how it's implemented and how long any necessary regulatory processes will take. There's also some outstanding questions around whether the Dutch and the Japanese would be able to replicate some of the more novel aspects of the U.S. controls, particularly around U.S. person activities, which is in the U.S. controls. So will there be comparable restrictions in Japanese personnel? Meaning, uh, Emily, that it's not just about the tools or the chips, but actually engineers themselves cannot go to China. That's exactly right. And I think it's particularly important when you think about the risk that China perhaps has been stockpiling some of these tools in anticipation of rules like this. These tools are massively complicated. They require that sort of engineering support on a regular basis. So if China can continue to access that sort of expertise from the Dutch and the Japanese engineers, then there's an argument that they can kind of sustain their chip production capacity for longer than we would be comfortable with. And so that's a big outstanding question is about whether any of those Dutch and Japanese engineers would be restricted as well. Another question that I have in mind about the deal really, though, is whether it's a tactical victory or a strategic victory. I mean, I think there's some reasons why the Dutch and Japanese were motivated to get to a deal with the United States, including because of the possibility, whether it was made explicit or not in the conversations, that the United States could impose additional extraterritorial controls and just capture these tools anyways, in which case the Dutch and Japanese would be highly motivated to try to get to a deal that they thought they could work with. That is a bit of speculation. But if the negotiations played out in sort of that sort of way, it's not clear that we've actually won the strategic argument. 
in terms of getting the Dutch and Japanese in agreement that this is the right kind of approach to take more broadly when it comes to using our economic security tools. So there's that kind of open question as well. The question about whether the sort of ad hoc cooperation is the right way to proceed or whether we need some formal institution is very much a subject of debate right now as well. I personally think that there is a lot of benefit to formalizing these processes and getting a broader range of countries engaged. And ultimately, I think that is the state that we want to work towards. And thinking about how we can align on identifying the technologies that are most important and then aligning policies on how we'll use any sort of mechanism, whether it's export controls or investment screening or what have you, to kind of protect the same set of technology that we all think is important. Ultimately, that's where it needs to go. But I do think we're going to continue to see the ad hoc cooperation up and until then, in part because there's a lot of countries that still don't want to be seen as outwardly being opposed to China or taking actions that are specifically against China. There are these concerns about retaliation. I do think we need to take that very, very seriously. We haven't really seen a lot of retaliation yet when it comes to the October 7th controls. But I think the more that we get countries like Korea or Japan to take actions like this, the more that risk goes up. And it's something the United States needs to take quite seriously. Yeah, it, I mean, it, what it points to is in strategy, the enemy gets a vote and we and allies need to anticipate how we manage retaliation it would be good if the U.S. had more of a multilateral WTO approach to back that up right now, but there are other tools. I was just going to quickly, before letting Jude wrap up the discussion, which has been great, say one quick thing about Japan. I don't know the Netherlands process as well, but I would just say in Japan, 10 years ago, there were officials in METI and parts of the government pushing for exactly these kinds of controls. And within C-suites, you know, boardrooms of some of these tech companies in Japan, there were big debates years ago about exposure in China. So... I'm not sure about the Dutch, but I think in the Japanese and Korean case as well, our sort of extraterritoriality, in a lot of them, it's a little extra incentive, but the debates were already happening. This is a two-level game theory. It's not a unitary position in Japan or Korea, or I suspect in the Netherlands. And we were, I thought the administration finally was pretty skillful at leaning in in just the right way to tip the debate where it might have been heading anyway. But Ju, what do you think? I wanted to now use the uh, transition that you stole from me, Mike, which is to say that you know, strategic rivals get a vote here, too. And, and I wonder, Emily, if I could ask you a few questions on China's agency in this. You know, we've been talking a lot about what the United States and allies will do to deny China such and such technologies. But of course, China has its own choke point leverage. And as you were just indicating, one of the surprising things has been we've not yet seen what China's full final response or retaliation is to the October 7th rules. And I think Folks are still holding their breath to see what exactly comes down. And China's leverage points are significant over companies, supply chains, manufacturing. So to take the scenario that keeps many folks up at night, we keep pushing China. China decides it's going to cut off access to a significant stock and refining capabilities on rare earth and critical minerals. What does it look like for us if China then leverages its control over that choke point? So that gets messy really quickly. And I actually think that's one of the reasons why China may not use that particular lever here. I could be wrong on this and you know others may have the views on this. If China does try to leverage that choke point, I mean, there is a really high risk that what they do is end up screwing up supply chains even worse. And we have to keep in mind that their own chip industry just took a decent hit, right? I mean, it's one that they'll adapt to and, and try to recover from. But my sense has been that when it comes to retaliation for these particular actions, that if we see something from China, it may not be in the chip supply chain anywhere. They may try to retaliate in another space. So for example, there was some reporting recently 
about China considering some export controls on solar panels or something in that space, which would actually be kind of clever in terms of being a response that is politically sensitive for this administration, but at the same time, not going to really jeopardize U.S. energy security. So I would think that they would be trying to come up with some options along those lines that are retaliatory, but not an exact tit for tat and something that keeps it from escalating further. Keeping in mind as well, when we look at China's pattern of kind of responses to U.S. actions, it has been relatively measured, at least when it comes to U.S. government actions, separating that from actions against against U.S. companies, of course. That is a different story when it comes to retaliation against some of our partners and allies who have been the brunt of much worse retaliation from China. So unbalanced, I worry about the rare earth scenario, but I don't, I hope, I hope I'm right on this. I, I don't think we're we're at that tipping point yet with China. Final question for me, which is this might be unanswerable, but I wonder if you can speculate or pull out your crystal ball. 10 years ago, if we would have been sitting having this podcast and we would have said, you know, 10 years hence, we're going to see potentially an outbound screening mechanism in the United States. We're going to see an upgrading of CFIUS under FIRMA. We're going to see investment review mechanisms pop up, you know, around the world. We're going to see, you know, a tariff war between the United States and China. We're going to see export controls of significant scale going after, you know, the blanket cutting edge technologies of the future. No one would have predicted that very, very dark future. And so I guess my question is, do you see this settling into some new equilibrium where a few more years of readjustment and sort of working out some of the national security kinks in our previous model of globalization will finally come to some, not standstill, but at least a sustainable equilibrium that governments and companies can now start to think about, you know, rewiring supply chains without always worrying about the next action coming down the pike? Or is there a sort of, you know, Mike mentioned, you know, rent-seeking, you've got a real national security lens driving economic policy. Are we just in a, a ramp with no exit? Yeah, you know, the 10-year period is a really interesting one to look at. It was about 10 years ago that I actually started on the CFIUS portfolio, and it was really a quiet, kind of sleepy portfolio then. It was before we saw the big uptick in Chinese investment. I used to joke that like I just had my first kid, and it was a great job to work on CFIUS because I was home at a decent hour. That is no longer the case. I can assure you, uh, for the folks working in the CFIUS portfolio, these guys are working around the clock trying to keep up with everything. And I think that's true kind of across the economic security toolkit. Are we headed towards an equilibrium? I think that really depends on policy choices that are made now. I think there is a scenario in which this does land in maybe the five to 10 year range where we've made these adjustments to, as you say, work out the national security kinks. Um, We've de-risked in some of these advanced high tech areas. We've kind of dealt with some of the supply chain vulnerabilities in a way that we feel comfortable with. And then we can get back to kind of the old business of thinking about how the U.S. can actually lean on the global economics stage and start thinking about trade agreements again, all this other kind of stuff that we haven't really been doing recently. But I do think that takes stewardship from policymakers now on all sides from from us from China to kind of treat it as a transitionary period where we are aiming for a new steady state equilibrium, and that neither side has an interest in further escalation. And so when you see some of the rhetoric around full decoupling and the need to get rid of all trade with China, that does make one worried that this is more than a transition period. And so I do think smart choices now for policymakers to steward this well, to try to engage with China where possible, and to develop a new model of thinking about the economic relationship 
I don't think there's any near-term scenario where we go back to negotiating a China bilateral investment treaty, for example, where we're just talking about increased market access. We have to find some way to grapple with the fact that the national security issues are so much at the fore of the economic relationship. But I, I do hope that we can make the right choices now, having an ultimate objective of getting to that steady state equilibrium. You know why I'm cautiously optimistic, Emily? It's because of the point you made in your foreign affairs and one of the rocks pieces that the U.S. can't do this without allies. So just like we said, the enemy gets a vote, the allies get a vote. And the Japanese, Koreans, the Dutch, they're not going to sign on for complete decoupling. It might discipline us a bit. There we go. <laughs> this has been terrific. And I think people are going to really want to follow your work at CNAS and your, and your publications. And this gave a really great recap of what you've written, but also something of a preview of what's coming. And people will be really interested. Thank you, Emily. Thanks for having me. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at CSIS.org and click on the Asia program page. And for more on the U.S. Studies Center in Sydney, please visit ussc.edu.au.